Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Up to the Table Dallas on this uh, sweltering, sultry summer day here in Dallas. Glad you're here. If you are at the, the Table Dallas here at Mill Street House, we have beautiful air conditioning. Um, for those of you who are gathering with us around the world, we're glad you've taken the time to join us as we start a brand new series, brand new series. And I want to say a couple of words by way of uh, introduction here. Uh, this is a study that um, I've wanted to do for um, quite a little bit of time. And, um, but it's not the kind of study um, that you can do without laying some groundwork. So, for instance, um, earlier this year, we spent quite a long time in the book of Jonah. Again, um, dealing with a particular style of writing and how it is that uh, we're faithful in interpreting and applying a text like um, Jonah, where we're looking at it not as a narrative historical, right, but more of a more of wisdom literature as we've done. And so this is the natural progression then for us um, at the table as we kind of uh, fine-tune our, um, our skills, our hermeneutic skills and our understanding of the text. So we are diving into, for the next 12 weeks, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is the Greek name that we're probably familiar with. Usually it's translated something like um, teacher or somebody who assembles a group in Greek. In Hebrew, the word is Koheleth. Koheleth, say that with me. Koheleth. K-O-H-E-L-E-T-H. You can see it on your handout there. And so you'll hear me from now on, as best I can, refer to it from the Hebrew name because it's Hebrew wisdom literature. All right? And so by way of introduction, you, you have in front of you, and this is a little bit out of order, but I some of you are staring at the paper, which is always good, as long as you're listening to the, to the uh, Koheleth, the teacher, um, Koheleth Dave, yes, as long as you're listening to the, the teacher. Uh, what you have in front of you is something that we're going to build on for 12 weeks. It's called an artifact. An artifact is simply something that a teacher uses to help bring and summate things, and you will be able to collect these as you come in. Um, if you miss a Sunday, which I know all of us probably will, it's still, life is still life, um, I'll have backup copies, and you'll be able to listen on the podcast, um, and so you should be able to make your way through all 12 chapters, all 12 weeks of it. But like any other um, study, when you're beginning, we need to do lay some ground rules. Uh, some ground rules. So that first little section, that first page laid out for you, has um, some introductory material. I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I'm going to touch on each of those so that we have a base of operations, okay? So um, this book, Kohelet, is filled with all kinds of questions and doubts. The ones that all of us have, the writers here, oh, thank you, pencils. Pens, sorry. The writers here help us deal with some of the questions that maybe we're too afraid to ask, or statements that we're too afraid to make out loud. So we're going to explore for the next three months one of the most honest, and I would argue the rawest books of all of Scripture, 
I spent the last month devouring books on it and reading from different perspectives, and I hope that will help us as we go through the study. Um, but primarily what I want us to do, different in this study than a lot of other studies on the book of Kohelet, is to really focus in how the gospel answers these questions. Because you could make the case that Jesus, the great ultimate teacher, answers every one of his questions in his life, ultimately then in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we'll do that. So before we jump in a little bit about the author and its purpose, again I said Kohelet in the Hebrew Bible, that's the name. It's often uh, rendered as preacher or teacher. Um, the root is to assemble. So it's somebody who assembles a group of people. Um, so early scholarship would say, okay, this is someone who's in a position of authority, maybe in the temple, who's teaching, who's leading. And traditionally, Solomon has been named the author. But most more recent scholarship and study of the form leads us to perhaps question the idea that it's Solomon himself, more than likely... Um, this person who is describing his quest, and so we're going to call him the quester, who's describing himself is probably not Solomon as much as it is somebody writing in Solomon's tradition, in a wisdom tradition. Because we have two distinct voices in Kohelet. We have the one who takes up the majority of it, the teacher, but then we have another character in there, another speaker who's unnamed, but he's clearly teaching his son about the teacher. So you have two differing voices, which kind of leads us to think, okay, this is something other than just Solomon, um, you know, sprouting out all of these questions. They are life questions. And so it's a common literary device at that time, so it shouldn't surprise us. So what we might think of is this book is really a person speaking to his son about the thoughts of the teacher, of Kohelet. And I said, well, how in the world could I possibly make that, have that make sense to you? Um, and then it dawned on me. My favorite movie of all time is the perfect illustration of this. My favorite movie of all time, <laughs> The Princess Bride. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. You think he's going to make it? I don't know. It's going to take a mirror. But if you know that story, that story is formatted in the same way that Kohelet is written. is written. You've got the grandfather reading a book to his grandson in the living room, but the main character is telling the story, and then, of course, you know, the whole movie is the illustration of it. That's what we have here. We have a father, unnamed, telling his son and asking him and saying, here's what the teacher says. What do we think about this? Does it make sense? So that's the style that we have here. A couple of key themes. Um, one word or a phrase that pops up in Kohelet with more frequency than any other is translated in English as vanity. In Hebrew, the word is hevel, hevel in Hebrew. Um, that's why our series is entitled Havel, Life Under the Sun, two of the phrases that are repeated over and over. And that Hebrew word is an interesting one. It can be translated, most English translations say something like meaningless or absurd 
or something along those lines. But in Hebrew, the actual word, the root, means something like breath, or vapor, or mist, or nothing. It has a lot of different variations. Interestingly, it's the same root word, Pavel, is the same root word as the name of the second son of Adam and Eve. First son is? Cain. Second son is? Abel. Havel, Abel, same root word. And you get this idea, right? So Abel, his life was short, very short. Had like a vapor. It was there and then it was gone, right? So we have that idea. So this word, Havel, meaningless, vapor, absurdity, nothing, whatever translation we like to use there, it's going to be like a buzzing fly at a picnic. It's going to keep coming back. It's going to keep landing in places that are inconvenient. And you're like, ooh, I don't like this being described this way because it just feels wrong. So we're going to deal with some of those, right? Um, another one is toil that you'll see on there on your artifact. Toil, um, there's this idea of... Um, under the sun. These are some of the phrases that are repeated over and over that we'll see popping up. But I want to give you a warning here at the beginning about the tension in Ecclesiastes or Koheleth. It is relentless. It's over the top sometimes. It just, when you read it and you hear it and you say it out loud, you're like, can I really say something like that in front of God? It's like that kind of tension going to make us uncomfortable, and Koheleth himself jumps from angry to, to rational to blunt to lamenting. It's almost like he's all over the place, and he never seems to feel the need to kind of ease us into the truth. He's not kind of soft-selling anything. It's like, boom, right to the point. So if there's something that the Koheleth does really well and excels at, it's real talk. It's like the real feelings that we as humans often have, but because we grew up in the church, right, we sometimes go, well, I don't know if I really should say or question that or express that doubt out loud. Okay, just a word now, one more um, section here, a word now about wisdom literature, which should be on your second page there. You flip it over to the back page. A word about wisdom literature. And this is, we're not going to do this every week. I'm not going to give this long introduction every week. But as we get started on the back page, yep, you flip it over on the back page, you'll see a word or two about the parameters that we're going to use. So the Bible is a single volume library, but it's composed of 66 individual books. You've got nine genres. We've got law, historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, literature, po wisdom literature, prophecy, gospels, epistles, and apocalyptic literature, which we've seen like in the book of Revelation when we're studying. Okay, Each genre reveals something unique about God in both its style and its substance, and so we need to approach each genre differently. <clears throat> that is a key piece for us at the table, understanding that the type of literature that we're reading has an effect on how we're supposed to deal with it. Does that make sense? We don't treat poetry the same way we do a historical narrative. In the same way that when we read a newspaper, we're not expecting something in a newspaper to be the same as 
I don't know, romantic fiction or sci-fi or anything else, right? The same is true when we read scripture, okay? We need to approach it, and so here's our parameters. Number one, even though it's opaque and confusing, it's important to recognize wisdom literature as, is just as inspired as any other genre in scripture, even though we tend to want to run away from it. I think we want to run away from wisdom literature, and I think we want to run away from apocalyptic literature. Because both of them are so hard to understand, right? That's number one. Number two, and this is key, again, these are all key, wisdom literature should be read as a principle, not a promise. So what do you think I mean by that? A principle, not a promise. So I'll give you an example from another piece of wisdom literature, book of Proverbs. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I cannot tell you how many times parents have quoted this to me when their child or children are not following in the way of faith. They're going, well, we train them upright. The promise of God is that they will. But wisdom literature is a principle, not a promise. So what do we mean? It does not apply to all situations. <laughs> As a general rule, that's true. Best practice. Best practices. As a general rule, that's true, right? We can find exceptions to every one of them. In every piece of, of um, proverbial wisdom, we can find the exception to the story, right? We can do that. So we want to read this genre as principal truths rather than truths specific in every single circumstance, all right? Number three, wisdom literature is poetic. So it uses a lot of word pictures, it uses metaphors, it uses imagery. And again, we shouldn't read it like a scientific or a doctrinal piece that's filled with linguistic precision. What we're doing when we're reading wisdom literature is trying to figure out what does this evoke in us? What feelings does this evoke in us? So you're going to hear me a lot. What are these? Each week we're going to approach it the same way. What does this, how does this make you feel when you say this out loud? Because it's supposed to evoke something in us, okay? Um, also, number four, ancient poetry is found in wisdom literature. Is, it uses parallelism. Um, and what that means is sometimes they're seen as opposites to each other. They seem at odds, but the writer, the wisdom writer, is using them as a comparison, right? To kind of uphold, look, this is the opposite of this. And so here's where it becomes dangerous. So you can read one piece of the parallelism that says you should do this and this is the good thing to do. And then just at the next part of the verse or the following verse it says the opposite is this. If we just pull out that last verse and we go, see the Bible says we can pull out only part of the parallelism and we go, see, this is what the Bible says. See what I'm saying? So we have to be careful that we understand what it is that we're doing, okay? Um, and that's where that next one comes in place. So number five, sometimes wisdom literature focuses on the anti-wisdom. Like, this is what you shouldn't do. And so you don't want to pull that out and be like, see, the Bible says we should do this. Well, not necessarily. Um, the Bible calls that folly. It's like cautionary tale. All right? So we've got to be careful not to mistake anti-wisdom as a prescription for how we should live our lives or um, something that's morally good. 
And then, uh, second to last, we should read um, wisdom literature in light of the reality of sin and how distorted and twisted God's perfect design is. We have to read it as, this is life in a fallen world. It's not the way God designed it. So the wisdom literature is trying to find the good and the twisted and the twisted and the good. Make sense? And then finally... We have to remember that all wisdom is fulfilled and embodied in Christ. We can't, we cannot um, gain godly wisdom outside of life in Jesus. He's the mis- the way and means of wisdom, and without him, we won't have wisdom. So, we're going to spend time speaking about how the gospel, how Jesus, how the Holy Spirit inside of us helps us take this wisdom and, and put it in place. One last thing before we dive in. Um, what I've done, what we're going to do um, in terms of how we're going to approach the text is typically we've been reading from one translation, the Common English Bible. We've done that because we want to be all on the same page. We want to be looking at the same text. Wisdom literature is one of the most challenging ones to translate because it's the Hebrew wisdom literature because there's so many possibilities, so many different angles depending upon who's reading, and maybe what, the, what they're trying to emphasize. So what, I'm, what we're going to be doing for this series is we're going to be, or I'm going to be creating for you, a miscellany. A miscellany is simply a collection of translations. And it's kind of like, if we were music, we call it a mashup, right? The music, is that what it's called? Where's Brian? Okay. A mashup. Yeah, that's a, it's it's a musical in music. This would be called a mashup, putting a bunch of songs together. In the traditional church, it might have been called a medley. Like you, you do, but a miscellany is simply a lot of different translations. So we're going to use that. It's a very blunt translation, like trying not to ease it and soften it, like the ESV does sometimes with the common English. So this is several different translations that I'm working and putting together in the miscellany, and you'll have that every week. So that's where we find ourselves now. We're going to read from that. That'll be your, our text. And as we start today, we're just going to look at the first 11 verses of Guelph. And I've written it for you there in a miscellany. And so anybody who would like to read that out loud, and then we're going to start answering questions in four categories every time. The first thing we're going to do is, well, actually, technically five. We're going to say, what does this text evoke in us? Like, what do we notice about it? What stands out to us? And then there's four things. I'm calling it the ICCGA question. So individual, community, city, and gospel. How does this text speak to us individually, as a community of faith, to our city or broader city, and how does the gospel answer it? How does it help us share the gospel? Does that make sense? All right, any questions on that opening? I know that was 18 minutes. We'll never get back again. Um, But we need to do that as our base of operation. Any questions or comments, thoughts, anything that seems, that needs clarifying? Yeah? You said you won't enjoy this study. You don't know me very well. Say say it one more time. You said you won't won't enjoy this study. You don't know me very well. Yes. Yes, um, I've enjoyed it. I've spent several weeks in this, several days down at the lake, 100%, like 12 hours a day for a couple of days, no distractions, 16, 18 books I've consumed. You see some of them on that list. So we're really going into a text and going back to the roots in the Hebrew and digging it out 
and going, let's not be afraid. Let's see what we get. Yeah. So as we're as we're looking through the text, those are the two questions we're just always going to ask: is what what's evoked in us and the ICCG? Yeah. So those two sections. So we're going to start. We'll read the text, the first eleven verses today, and we'll ask the question: Okay, what grabs you in this text, or what questions come to you as you read it? And then we start. We're going to spend the majority of the time in the application piece, which okay. So what does it mean to us? Like as we read it individually, I'll have questions for you. As a community, I'll have questions for us. As uh, we think about our city and the world bigger, I'll have questions for us. And then finally, about the gospel. How does it help us? Or how does the gospel answer it? Yeah. All right? So you'll get, each week you'll have an add-on to this that'll have the miscellany, which is the mashup. I love mashup, but a lot of people don't know what that meant. So unless you're a musician, you probably don't know what that is. So the miscellany, we get the word miscellaneous from it, right? So miscellany, and then you'll have the ICCG section to write your notes in. All right? Good. All right. Who would like to read us those 11 verses from our miscellany for, oh, uh, Brenda's going to do it, for those um, benefiting the uh, podcast. Go ahead. Privileged, loved, educated, wealthy. This is what I saw. Emptiness, utility, vapor, vanity, everything is ephemeral. Everything crumbles to dust in your hands. Everything passes away. There is no escape. What good does it do to work hard and get ahead? Whole generations are born, suffer, work themselves to exhaustion, and die with nothing to show for it. All while the world spins in place, unmoved by their comings or goings. The sun rises, the sun sets, then it rises again. The winds, indifferent, rush past. Rivers empty endlessly into a sea that will never be full. All of this, relentless, repeats again and again. It uses me up. No matter how many stories I'm told or how much beauty I see, it's never enough. I'm still left wanting more. The present repeats the past, and the future repeats the present. Nothing is new. Nothing on God's green earth or under God's blue sky. Nothing under the sun moves us to shout, Look, it's new! Everything is an iteration of what went before, Things only seem new because our memories are short. <laughs> no one remembers what happened last week, let alone last year. We forget everything, and our children remember even less. Even My, though, how gloomy. <laughs> even though it's hard to believe, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, so this is, a, this is an illustration of a particularly negative or... Um, what else word would you use? Description of wisdom literature. Pessimistic. Pessimistic. So pessimistic. That's the word I'm looking for. Pessimistic. So again, when we're reading wisdom literature, the first thing we want to talk about, right, is, okay, so what grabs our attention individually? What grabs our attention? In other words, what are some of the things that it, that it rises up in you? Maybe questions, thoughts, comments. Uh, and you hit one beautifully, right? Oh, man, this seems like depressing. Right. All right. So, what are some of the other responses? Pity for the writer. Oh, you feel pity for him. Like, okay. 
Gotcha. Mike? Nothing changes. Everything's the same. Thanks, Eeyore. You say Eeyore? <laughs> it feels a little Eeyore-like, doesn't it? Or Charlie Brown. That's good. All right. What other, what other things does it evoke in you? Yeah, I feel like these are the questions that I think about a lot. I mean, it's, it's things that you wrestle with. There is a certain connection, right, to we've all probably thought that at some point in our life. Like, what are we doing here? Like, why am I in this job? Why am I in this marriage? Why this? Why that, right? These are questions, right? And so it should evoke something in us. What else? Grabbing our attention, questions, thought that arise as we reflect on what's been said. I love that these are things that I think and feel in my daily life, and somebody generations ago had the exact same contemplations of the, the oceans will never be full, but, you know, um, and it's still true generations later. That's yeah. because nothing changes, everything stays the same. I don't find this upsetting. Okay. I find it almost kind of resolving that pressure's off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, it, and it puts in perspective then what really is important because instead of being swirled into feeling like there are all these avenues of, of busyness that in the end. No, I, like I don't have a whole bunch to say about it. Yeah, I like it. And, and it's going to be good because over the next 11 Sundays, we're going to find that the Kohel is the teacher, not the grandfather, or the yeah, grandfather, or the father teaches some, but Kohel himself is going to hit every one of the categories we've probably thought of in life. Pursuit of money, pursuit of knowledge, you know, uh, Sexual freedom, whatever, right? All of those things, little by little, and it's free, right? Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to follow what, what she said to me. Yes, at one time, I remember reading this and thinking, wow, that, that's so. It really resonated how absolutely gloomy, helpless everything was. But now, to me, this is freedom. Mm -hmm. Because you, especially the line where it says, it's never enough. I'm still wanting more. When you get to that point and you can look all around you and go, none of that is going to do what I need it to do. Suddenly, you don't have to amass stuff anymore. You don't have to climb the corporate ladder anymore. You don't have to drive the nicest car, have the brand new iPhone. You don't have to be in debt anymore. You don't have to have a better house anymore. Suddenly, you can stop and go, where does my real value where does my real fulfillment lie? And it's not in anything of this world. And then you can go back to your true source. So to me, this is freedom. freedom. Yeah, Mike? Uh, well, she made me think of uh, like it's a stage of maturity. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I like that in the first verse, it seems like the people he's speaking to are the people that have made it. You know, like the, the list of people are the privileged, the loved, the educated, and the wealthy. And he's telling these people that have worked and achieved that like none of it matters. Not the poor people that are like, it's fine, like you're you're toiling away and not earning anything. He's telling the people that are well off. Um, 
and I, yeah, that, it's intriguing. That's who he's addressing. So each week we're going to do these questions. These we're going to deal with the questions in four areas: the ICCG. So individually, the ICCGA questions. If you want to flip your page over, some of you are there. Um, if you want to take some notes here, this would be where I'll ask different questions every week that it evokes in me, and then kind of see where we see where we land. A lot of this is uh, the format that I've laid out kind of gives us a framework, but then obviously, as you guys participate, things morph and change and kind of go in different directions. So um, this gives us a little space to do that. So when we think about it individually, as we read it individually, that's our first focus. Then we'll look at what it means as a community together and for our city and then the gospel individually. What do you think this text is designed to do? In other words, how do you feel reading it? Which we touched on, some of you touched on that, but what do you think the text is designed to do? So the writer has a purpose. Every writer has a purpose, right? So what's it designed to do right off the bat? First 11 verses. Think. So you think it's designed to make you think? Yeah, to think introspectively. Okay. To realize your insignificance. So, ooh, I like that one. To, to recognize or realize you are insignificant in the big picture of things? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Make you think that, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That, that sounds mean. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm not saying it's not true because that's what it evokes in us, right? It does make you feel like, well, what good am I then? If, if there's nothing new and everything's meaningless and everybody's tried everything and it doesn't do anything, yeah, I can see how that would be. How you feel, Nancy? It's kind of a what's the point? You know, I get it. I get That's kind of the ERPs, yeah. right? Why do I even bother? <laughs> Everything's the same. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I'm, I'm a little tainted because I, I read the Midrash on why Ecclesiastes was written, and it, it's written because of. Um, well, one of the high holy times is the Feast of Tabernacles, which everybody goes to Jerusalem. Well, it's, it's mostly the, the men that are called to go to Jerusalem to present themselves at the temple. One of three times of the year. One of three times of the year. And you build um, your sukkahs for the week. Well, they started making it a family event. You know, why should the men just go along and bring on the families, okay? That means families are getting together, that they haven't seen each other except three times a year kind of thing. Sounding good. Still still a holy thing. Okay, now it's starting to get more like the homecoming mums over the decades where they started out to be a, a, a holy function, not, not that school mums are. But now it got to be progressing to an outrageous party all the right. time. Yeah. What is the purpose of it? We missed the holy purpose right. of it. And so Kohelethir is writing to bring it down back to perspective. And so I'm tainted with... No, and I think you're right. Because, because the Festival of Booths... It is a fun festival. It's a celebration. But it was supposed to remind them of what God had, did, had done to free them 
from and, and from the, Egypt. Well, from Egypt and the whole time in the wilderness, they had no protection. Right. So it's a reminder of their purpose. And God right. providing. So this them. is typically read during that. This is the text that's read during that festival. Yeah. Somebody else was getting ready to say something. Oh yeah. I mean, so for me, like a key phrase in that first paragraph is, "This is what I saw." And I mean, I know for like those of us who are parents who are trying to raise our kids in the Christian faith, I think I feel like one of the biggest mistakes I make is when I gloss over what seems like an obvious pain in the world or an injustice. Um, and I feel like I get a lot more headway with my kids, but I just acknowledge like, yeah, there is this discrepancy. Like, you know, like with for my youngest, for example, like she struggles with like, well, Christianity is supposed to be this, but I see Christians act like this. And if I were to say, well, no, blah blah blah, it's like she's she's gonna tune me out. But if I say like, okay, yeah, I see what you see and acknowledge it as reality, now I think she's gonna hear me a little bit better. And I think I, that's kind of what I see here is like him acknowledging like. Yeah, this is what I see too. And, and we'll get to this in a moment. We get to the to the community or the city side of it. But um, on Paramount Plus, if anybody has that, there's a show called um, uh, Your Honor. It's got uh, the guy from Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston. Right? Yeah, Brian Cranston. And it's it's one of those real stories because there's a there's a 17 year old girl that grows up in the Catholic Church, right? Who is is kind of deconstructing her faith, and she makes this. She it's just one this brilliant this brilliant scene because she sits there, and her parents are like, "Do you believe?" And she's like, "Do I believe in what?" And she's like, "Do you believe in God? You mean the God that told Abraham to take his only son and to go and kill him on the mountain, whatever? Would you do that, Mom and Dad? Do you believe enough to to offer me up? You know, those are real life questions." Right? And you're right. I think we sometimes we want to downplay these and be like, well, you know, just pretend you don't have that feeling. No. When I read that story of Abraham and Isaac, there's a part of me as a dad that just wants to vomit. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I'm just saying. And I'm a yeah. pastor, so. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah? Quickly, yeah, what do we have? I was just going to add, and, and for me, where your kids have a hard time seeing God that way. My kids read this after, uh, for those who don't know, my kids were 10 and 13 when their dad died, my mother died, and we went through hell year. And they, up until that time, all of their stories at church had been, everything worked out great. Feel good, yeah. You know, the giants was slain, all, everything came out perfect. And they hit a point where there was a God they could not relate to. Because that... You know, they couldn't relate to the perfect ending. This kind of scripture helped my kids find God again. Because suddenly they could relate to this. Right. They could relate to sometimes it's just crap. And it is what it is. And God is still in the crap. Good. Yeah. The, the thing that kind of Absolutely. speaks out to me is that everything is an iteration of went before. Like to me that gave me hope. So yeah, I mean things suck, but we can we can make it we can try every time and make it better. And so it's not nothing stands still either, right? I mean it lets I don't know, work through things. So again, individually thinking about this from an individual perspective, um, 
What happens when we live our lives, uh, when we live like our lives are only a fleeting breath? Like this life is all there is. What happens when we do that? How, how do we fool ourselves through our work, our toil, our activity? <coughs> Any thoughts on that? What happens when we live like he's describing there? Or um, how do we fool ourselves into thinking that some of those things are actually going to give us some meaning or some answer to life? Anybody? I think it varies for how people respond because we've had world leaders that have decided, well, I just need to spend my time making a name for myself so I live beyond, like, so cause as much damage, make as much noise, make my name stand out because that's the only way to make this life worth it. Um, and then there's some people that Mother Teresa quietly, like, I'm just going to devote every moment of my life to serving others. Uh, so I think it varies based on what you think makes this matter. Everybody approaches that differently. I, I agree. I think it depends on whether you see this as gloom and doom or whether you see it as freedom. Mm. If you see this as gloom and doom, you're going to, well, then I'm going to get what I can get now. If you see this as freedom, then you go, you take a whole different inventory of your life and you make it a whole different focus because you realize that what you're really looking for is only going to be found in God. And your joy and your your fullness is only going to be found in Him. Depending on which way you see this will, de will determine your path. And I think it's interesting that we keep, you know, we, we bring up this idea. And I think we're all, you know, as followers of Jesus, we, we want to make this answer is, yes, I know that the gospel gives me the answer to life. That Jesus is that answer, right? Life in him, all of this toil and work and all the other things that we seek to find solace in or meaning in. And yet, we still fall prey. Like, I know a lot of people of faith who are working 80, 90 hours ignoring their families. Dad's doing that. I know people of faith who are, who are like, hey, it's all about, you know, the next experience that we can have. And, right? and, and there's nothing wrong with work or enjoying experiences. But there is a part of that, right, if we're not careful, that we all fall into that somehow this feeling that I have is going to be alleviated if I just make a little bit more money, yeah. if I'm just in a better job, or maybe if I could just get to retirement. I mean, this conversation I've had with four people this week about retirement. Mm -hmm. They're like, if I can just get there. I'm like, I thought I could make it to this, but I'm like, oh, I'm just, I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, can I do another day, right? Those are real life questions, right? And stuff we have to answer. All right, so as a community then, how do we, if we recognize that we fall sometimes into that trap, Jesus said, right, store up treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, not things on earth that are destroyed by moth and, and rust and, you know, all of the kind of stuff. So what role can we play in each other's lives to help us navigate this struggle? Because I'm going to argue, I mean, we, we want to say all the right things, but... There's a part of us, right, that sits there and says, if I could just have a little more, or if this situation was just, let's just say that, if this situation was just a little bit different, fill in what that is. If my 
my kids are out of the house, or if my kids were this, or if my job was this, or if my spouse was this, or my life situation was this. What role does the community of faith play in helping us not fall prey to this tendency? Can we call it that? I think if the community of faith could somehow figure it out and not be driven by those things, I think they'll get that freedom that you're talking about and that other people around you in that community will see that maybe how they're pursuing that extra dollar, that extra experience, maybe that's not exactly what will satisfy that gap in that hole that they're searching for. Well, even asking for help or giving help like y'all did for us, you know, that's just such a huge thing. It's hard to let go of that Oh, I'm going to handle this all by myself. Mm -hmm. But when when you ask for help, mm -hmm. it just lifts a burden that is so tremendous. And and I think that's where this comes into effect. You know, he, the writer seems burdened. The writing seem, the writer seems heavy with with worry and doubt. And when you ask for help from your community, and they give help, mm -hmm. it's just a burden lifted. Set. The word I'm hearing you say is talking about vulnerability. Just being willing to say, yeah, it's not all. I think snow cones and whatever the phrase is. I forget the phrase. Butterflies, butterflies and what? It's not all us. Rainbows and butterflies. I think that you have to be, I think that when you're a member of a community that you trust and you give them permission to speak your life and so you you trust them enough that when they see something and they call it out that it may not sit well right then but you know what their intent is and that causes you to refocus mm -hmm. back yeah. it's that iron shepherd's iron yeah. accountability mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I was going to say mm -hmm. I have a group of three that I I have an agreement with each of them separately we talk to each other a couple of times a week so who are you encouraging this week? How are you intentionally investing in other people this week? And that's really what kind of the summary of what of our questions is: How are you investing in other people? Not business, not something you can get or you want from them, but how are you investing in them? How are you encouraging them, lifting them up, blessing them in some way? And we are intentionally looking outside. Because otherwise you do, you become consumed with this. It's easy, it's everywhere. And I think you have to make it a choice. You know, Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. It's a choice every single day to look beyond just the chaos. I think one of the immaturities that I've had to acknowledge in my particular faith is that I, I really had no place for pain for me or for other people. That pain for myself or for other people, you know, my approach was an ibuprofen approach. You know, it's my goal for myself and for others is to get rid of the pain. Yeah, and I think the older we get, you know, I, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself you learn like there are pains that just don't go away. 
and you learn to, one of the ways I feel like I'm having to grow in my faith is that I, I have to let both that pain in for myself and for other people. And I think sometimes the most powerful things that people have done for me is just to be present right. yeah. as opposed to like fix it. And I think when I allow myself to experience the pain, and I mean, you spoke about this before in the prior that our tendency is to run away from it. It's, it, I basically experienced the grace of Christ more powerfully because I'm, I'm being honest for myself and for other people. Right. And I think that's a, a, a beautiful description of um, this truth the basis if we don't allow the gospel to transform our pain, we're going to transfer it. Mm -hmm. So if we're not if we're not allowed, you know, we have to deal with it. It's like you have to process that, and a lot of times it takes a community to do that, right? Because on our own, you're like, yeah, I want to hold this all in, and some of that process is using the community to help transform that pain, so that we don't transfer it to the next generation or whoever is in relationship with us. That's a key piece of, of uh, count a little bit of pastoral counseling. If you don't transform it, if you don't allow the spirit to transform it, you will transfer it, and that'll be a mess. All right, so now quickly, um, so we have a culture, I would argue, that looks at life often in this way. Like, that life could be seen as, like, YOLO. Like, you only live once, so let's have every experience you could possibly have. Let's do whatever feels best to you. Let's go for the gusto. Let's get as high in business as we can. Let's make as much, as much money as we can. All the things that we're going to see. How, then, do we, as followers of Jesus, what does it look like for us to be a witness to the gospel that says this isn't the way to fight happiness? Is it simply just by not pursuing those things? Because I know a lot of people who are faithful followers of Jesus who are very successful in business and other things. So it surely it can't just be don't go after money, don't go after you know uh, promotions, don't be successful, whatever. It can't be that. It has to be something else, right? How do we as faithful followers answer or speak to a culture that's all about YOLO I think the key is realizing everything we get is really not ours. Everything we get is actually God's, and he has a purpose for it. I was talking to somebody this week who makes significant money. And this person said to me, you know why I love making money? And you have to understand this person is driving a 10-year-old car and living in this 1,500-square-foot house. and you know, playing everybody, and the response was, I can give it away. And this person honestly looks at their career, their position, everything as a way of being able to raise people up. They can give away money. Everything in their life is not theirs. They steward it. They're the gate it passes through, but it's not theirs. And I think that's the key for everything. Do you think that message resonates in our culture when people hear that story? Do they go, oh, I should do that? Mm. No. I think for some people, mm. I think it does. It's not going to for everybody. Right. 
But then Jesus didn't resonate with everybody. No, true. So. True. Yeah. Other ideas? I think it comes down to your priorities. Like, what what is your what are you idolizing? Yeah. What are you putting first? Um, because everything is permissible without everything is beneficial. Like, what what is the aftermath of you prioritizing something? Um, spending 80 hours a week at work. You forfeit your family. Like there, there's a cost-benefit analysis to every choice that you make, and what are you choosing first? Other thoughts? Faithful witnesses in a culture. It's all about you only live once, so you might as well grab everything you can. who don't believe in, for lack of a better word, the long game. You know, we as Christians believe there's life after death. And so if we live our life based on that versus you only live once, you know, there's two different perspectives on how you approach life. Uh, and using that as what filters you. So when we talk about the gospel, so we've talked individual community, city, and gospel, and these are a little truncated this week because of the intro. But the question I have then is, uh, how does the gospel shine against the backdrop that the quester is painting for us? So the quester has painted a rather dark picture of life, right? So how does the gospel, how does Jesus, the good news of the gospel, so we're defining the gospel as not just fall redemption, but creation, so that's Imago Dei, right? Purpose, created with purpose. So Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the gospel. How does that, how does the gospel speak against or shine against the dark backdrop that the quester is painting for us? In other words, how do we, how do we weave the gospel as the antidote or the, the, uh, the answer to some of these questions? Mike? Well, these scriptures, to me, paint a picture of Feudalism uh, or hopelessness or rut, living your life in a rut with no, with the walls just getting higher and higher. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel, um, is that that Jesus can provide everything for us that we that we need, and we can breathe easy under his yoke and it's we don't have to bear the yoke of what society is saying our yoke should be yeah because we, as we learned our his yoke is gentle that was the word remember when we did for the spirit two weeks ago that the yoke of christ is gentle that's not how we would normally describe it but yeah nancy and i think that to jump off of that that's what i mean by insignificant because I think this, and the reason you can have freedom in it, is because it's showing how God's in control. Everything's going to happen over and over. The sun's going to rise, the wind's going to blow, and it's not my job. And there's a bigger picture, and if I can keep that bigger picture in mind, it's not something I can affect in all ways. I can't make the sunrise or the wind blow. 
Um, and so it's not that I personally am insignificant, it's that my um, vain attempts and stabs at creating perfection and being in charge and in control are insignificant. That's, and that's, yeah, that's part of that gospel message, right? The original sin is not that of control, yeah. right? I can't change the sunrise, I can't change the sunset. Life is going to go on, I can't control that, so yeah, go ahead. Part of the gospel too is when it says to have the mind of Christ who came to serve and not be served. And all of this stuff, he's talking about all the stuff that we try to amass. And none of it does any good, it just wears us out. I mean, think about, you get a big house, you get a big yard, now you have to mow it, you have to clean. You get a, you know, we amass stuff and it wears us out. So Whereas, if you take the mind of Christ to serve, everything you need, like you said, the yoke is gentle because everything you need, everything you need to be, is provided in Christ. It gives you a chance to step outside of that, you know, outside of that spinning, you know, it gives you that escape velocity to just step beyond. Something else we haven't really thought about is your focus. If you're focusing on the negative, you're going to have a negative heart. But if you focus on the positive and the good things, like thankful for I have a loving husband, thankful that I have a beautiful son, thankful that you know I have a protected house that I can live in, just the thankful thoughts instead of the woe is me thoughts. That has a lot to do with your mindset and your heart set. Too. That's true. Also, at the time of this writing, there was no Jesus. Like so, there, one main thing did happen that was a change that had never happened before and never will happen again, and that Christ flesh. came as flesh. Um, so it's different. We're in a different world. It'd be fun to watch over the next um, eleven weeks as we go through because. Uh, this was the introduction written by the, the, the father, if you will, to his son going, hey, look, this is what I've seen. And then the teacher says, which is where we're going to pick up now, and for the vast majority of the, of the book, all the way to the last chapter, we're going to be hearing the words of Kohelet, right? All the different things that he tried, right? And we're going to be focusing in on each one of those. But remember now, part of the beauty of all this, is, and you said it so, so nicely here, that we have the advantage of reading it in light of the gospel that they didn't have. So I think that's the beauty of, of this approach. Is like if we just read it for the words itself, like you would walk out of here going, well, that really wasn't that uplifting. But if you recognize that the, the, the goal now is to go, yeah, this is what life looks like when you have no connection, when you're not living in right relationship with God, each other, and the world around us. This is what life looks like, and it's real. Like, so how do we answer that? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing that together. Great work, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.